Our passage this morning comes from John chapter 1, um, verses 19 to 34. You can turn there in your Bibles, in the Pew Bibles there, it's on page 1127, or you can follow along on the screen behind us. Listen to God's word. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The word of the Lord. Well, I just got back a couple of days ago from Oklahoma. I was with my my family for Christmas. Um, And while I was there, I was reminded of a childhood tradition in my family. my parents still live in the same house that, that I grew up in. So um, sometimes as you walk around, sort of flashes from the past come back. And when I was growing up, we had, we had a two-story house. And upstairs, all of the kids' um, bedrooms were upstairs. There was four of us. We all slept upstairs. And then um, my parents' bedroom was downstairs. And so on Christmas morning, we would, we would wake up, we'd be excited, we'd come down the stairs, but my parents had this rule. You had to wait on the stairs until they were ready for Christmas to begin. And so we would come down excitedly, and one of us would be nominated to go in and wake mom up, never dad. <clears throat> And mom would say, okay, we'll go wait on the stairs. And we would sit there on the stairs while they got ready 
for the day. It was an excruciating experience. I mean, we probably waited four minutes, you know, enough time for them to go to the bathroom and brew a cup of coffee, but it seemed like an eternity on the stairs. And as we waited, the, the excitement would grow, the, the, the desperation would grow, the anticipation would grow, and any, any creak in the floor, and we thought, maybe they're coming to tell us it's time to begin. Well, that's such a small thing compared to the situation that we find the Jews in as we begin our text this morning. They have been waiting for 400 years to hear a word from God again. They received a prophecy from Malachi. It's the final prophecy of of any major prophet. And Malachi told them that God was going to come. And the generation heard and believed. And then that generation died. And then their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and on down the line, they all died. And the promise wasn't being fulfilled. And desperation had begun to set in. And the anticipation began to grow. And every, every creak in the floor of Israel made them think, maybe this one. And that's where our text picks up. The people are desperate to hear from God. And then word begins to spread about this guy named John. Our text this morning begins, and this is the testimony of John. So it would do us well to begin by thinking about who is John. I mean, if this is his testimony, we should know who he is, so we know how much credence to give it. Well, just to be clear... It's not the John that wrote this book. The book is written by the Apostle John, by the disciple of Jesus named John. But he's writing about another John, John the Baptist. It's the testimony of John the Baptist, but who is he? You see three things about who John the Baptist is. The first, we should know that John the Baptist is uh, a bit of an eccentric fellow. And we know from other places in scripture that he wore camel skin clothes. He lived on a diet of of locusts and and wild honey. I mean, frankly, John was weird. But, But here's John and he's just preaching up a storm and people from all over the place are going out to hear him. They're being baptized by him in the Jordan River. In fact, so many people are being baptized by John, that the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, begin to get worried about this guy. Who is this guy that's causing such a fuss in all of Israel? They get so worried that they send out an an envoy, a, a group, a small group of people to figure out who he is. And our text tells us that this group of people is made up of priests and Levites. 
So don't think of this envoy as a group of sort of hired hands or, or private investigators. No, they're sending from their own number. These are Pharisees going out to figure out who John is, or at least who John thought he was. Our text picks up and says the envoy has shown up and has begun to question John about who he is, right? They had that same question that we're asking this morning. Who, who are you? You're causing a stir. You're either something special or you think you're something special. Who are you? And, and the text says that's the question they ask. Very simple. Who are you? And he answers them in the strangest way. He basically answers them by saying, I'm, I'm nobody. Who am I? I'm nobody. You see, the Jews in those days are looking for three people. They're looking for the Messiah, the Christ, this promised one of Israel, promised all the way back from the Garden of Eden and then on through the generations, promised to Abraham, promised to David, this promised Messiah. But they're also looking for the prophet Elijah. As Malachi had told them in his prophecy, he said, Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, I will send my prophet Elijah. So they know if Elijah comes, the Messiah is close behind. And then thirdly, they're looking for this person they just call the prophet. And it comes from Deuteronomy. Moses tells them that the Lord will raise up a prophet like me from among you. And you should listen to him. Now, we're not going to spend our time this morning figuring out who all three of those people are. But I do want you to see the desperation in the people of Israel. They are desperately looking for these people. So when someone shows up and starts causing a ruckus, they begin to think maybe, maybe it's one of them. But John the Baptist says, I'm not, I'm not any of them. I'm just a nobody. I mean, do you see that there in verses 20 and 21? Verse 20 says, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. See, they said, who are you? But John knew what they meant. John knew what they were actually asking. I mean, how many times when people ask you who you are, do you respond by saying, well, I'm not the Messiah? Right? That that doesn't make any sense. But John knows what they mean. And so John points out that he's nothing. He emphasizes who he isn't. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one you're looking for. So the conversation continues. Verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. John says, in essence, I'm nobody. I'm certainly not anybody that you're looking for. A little later in the text, he's going to compare himself to Jesus. And he's going to make himself out to be even less of a nobody. In verse 27, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the one who's coming. This, this job, the job of untying sandals was a job that you would give to the lowest servant in the house. 
And John says, I'm so worthless. I'm such a nobody. I'm not even worthy of doing the lowest possible job in the house of the one who's coming. But even though he might think of himself as a nobody, the Pharisees, not convinced. They think he must be something because everybody is in an uproar about this guy. So they ask him again, who are you? And this is the answer he gives. It's in verse 23. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. John says, I'm the person telling you to get ready. Because the Lord, the one you are looking for, is on his way. John says, I'm a nobody, but I'm also somebody that God is using to fulfill prophecy. Somebody that God is using to get the way ready for the Lord. I just let that, let that sit with you for a moment. Reflect on what, what John is saying here. John is saying that God can use a self-proclaimed nobody and an obvious weirdo to prepare the way for the Lord. Maybe you should think about the way you view yourself. You know, I don't know how you think about yourself, but here's what I do know. God can use all sorts of people to bring about his kingdom Purposes. John was weird. Don't be confused. Don't think that camel skin and locusts for dinner was normal in the first century. It wasn't. He's a strange guy. But God used him in a powerful way. And here's why. Because when John thought of himself as a nobody, he thought of himself as a nobody as compared to Jesus. When John said he's not worthy to untie the sandal, he meant in the household of Jesus. The reason that God uses John in a powerful way is because John humbly gave himself to be used. Friends, this is what humility looks like. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking rightly of yourself. It's doing What Hebrews, I'm sorry, what Romans 12 tells us. It says to take a sober judgment. Take a sober look at your life. That's what John did. John looked at himself with sober judgment and said, compared to Jesus, I am nothing. And then at the same time was able to say, but I'm being empowered by God to bring about his kingdom purposes. Now, I don't know what you think about yourself this morning, but I know two things. One, compared to Jesus, you're nothing. But, empowered by God, you can bring about his kingdom purposes. Empowered by God, you are very much somebody. So, who is John? Well, John is this nobody who's being used by God in powerful ways to make straight the way for Jesus. 
So perhaps a second question that we might want to ask is, who's Jesus? Who does John say Jesus is? Well, John actually has a lot to say about who Jesus is. And let's start with that prophecy that he's already referenced. We already have this prophecy from Isaiah. John says in verse 23 that he's making straight the way for the Lord. But you know, we miss something when we read it there in the New Testament. If we really want to understand what he's saying, we have to go back to Isaiah. Back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, when the prophecy is actually given. Here's what Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 says. It says, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now if we know that John is preparing the way for Jesus, and we do, and we look at this verse, here's what it tells us. Jesus isn't some arbitrary Lord, some ruler, some master. No, John is telling us that he is making the way for God himself. We actually see it in two ways. The obvious one is that second clause in Isaiah. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is the obvious one. But John doesn't quote that. He doesn't quote that in the New Testament. So... We have to look at the first clause. But you know what? Actually, an even more compelling argument is made there. If you turned to Isaiah, and even if you didn't, it still says this. But Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, here's what it says. It says, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, when it says Lord, in the Old Testament, it's in all caps. Lord, all caps. Now, here's what's happening. Your translators are trying to help you out. They're trying to key you into something significant that has just happened in the text that you may have missed. There's a lot of words, there's a lot of Hebrew words that we can translate Lord. So when they translate them, they're trying to let you know this one is more significant. Here's what they're showing you. They're translating the name Yahweh. Prepare the way for Yahweh. So when John says he's preparing the way for the Lord, what he and what all of the priests and all of the Levites and all of the Pharisees would have known is that he means God. He means Yahweh. In other words, John is letting you know, John is claiming that Jesus is God. That's who Jesus is. So here in this passage, we have this, this nobody preparing the way for God himself. He's going to go on and tell us even more about who Jesus is. He begins by saying that Jesus is God, but then he ends this passage in verse 34 by saying that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, without getting into all of the the complexities of Trinitarian theology right now, let's actually just, just bask in the glory of this moment in the life of John. See, in verse 31, John says, I myself did not know him. 
Which isn't to say that he didn't have any relationship with Jesus. The book of Luke tells us that they're cousins. They, they probably knew each other. But John's point here is that he did not know the fullness of who Jesus was. And as we look on, as this happens here, the revelation of the fullness of who Jesus actually is, is being unfolded for John. As he talks there to this envoy from the Pharisees, and the next day as he talks to the crowds, the revelation of the fullness of who he is begins to be unfolded. The, the pieces begin to fall into place. It all begins to just make a little bit more sense. And John shares that with us. He shares it with us by saying he is God and he's the son of God. He is God and he is with God. Just as we heard last week in verse 1 of the same chapter, God and with God. But not just with God, Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is going to explain a little bit later in the book of John what exactly that means. In John chapter 8, he's having this conversation, this big conversation with the Jews. And he's trying to explain to them what it means to be a son. And his basic point is this. Sons act like their fathers. Sons act like their fathers. I mean, we still say this, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's just a chip off the old block. I mean, we still have this idea. Sons act like their fathers. So if you want to know who someone's father is, look at how they act. He actually tells the Jews, the Jews say, we're the sons of Abraham. He says, no, you're not. If you were the sons of Abraham, you'd act like Abraham. But you're the sons of Satan because you act like Satan. But then he says, but I am the son of God, my father. Which is why in chapter 5 of John, he's able to say that whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Jesus is God. He's also the son of God doing what his father does. But what is it that God the father is doing? Well, God is all about restoring relationship with his people. Which means that Jesus is all about restoring relationship with his people. But, but how? Well, that brings us to really the high point of John's testimony about Jesus. How is it? What is the means by which relationship is restored? John tells us in verse 29. He says of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there it is. It's the, it's the pinnacle of what John will tell us about Jesus. He'll actually repeat it the very next day. It's recorded a few verses later, 35 and 36. The second time Jesus says, behold, the Lamb of God, two of his disciples just immediately get up and start following Jesus. Right? Like that, that's what he wants. That's the desired result. 
If he's the Lamb of God, then people should immediately respond by getting up and following him. He's the Lamb of God, the Lamb from God. He's he's God's Lamb. What, What does being a Lamb have to do with anything? Well, that's how relationship is restored. You see, for millennia, the Jewish people have been sacrificing lambs to deal with their sins. Hebrews 10 tells us that the priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. That's what they were instructed to do, to sacrifice these spotless lambs to God, to try and to deal with the sins of the people. But the rest of that verse in Hebrews says that those sacrifices can never take away sins. All those lambs could never take away sins because they were the lambs of the people. They thought they were spotless lambs, but they weren't. The only truly spotless lamb is the lamb of God, the lamb from God. And this is who Christ is. But did you... Do you see what that means? When John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God, he is saying that Jesus will be slaughtered. He'll be slaughtered on our behalf to deal with our sins. He wasn't just a lamb, but he's a sacrificial lamb. He came to die for us. In fact, if we were to keep reading in that passage in Hebrews 10, after telling us that all the sacrifice of the priest didn't work, it says that Christ offered a single sacrifice for sins and set down at the right hand of God. You see what happened? The priest stood daily. The job was never done. Jesus offers one sacrifice and sits down because the job is complete. The sacrifices of the priest could never take away sin, but John tells us and Hebrews confirms that Jesus, the Lamb of God, took away the sin of the world. His sacrifice on our behalf was Sufficient, And not just sufficient for some, not just sufficient for the Jewish people, but sufficient for the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I do want to show you one difference in John and Hebrews. Because I think it's a profound difference. It shows us a really amazing truth. You see, John tells us, that Jesus takes away the sin of the world, singular, sin of the world. And Hebrews tells us that he sacrificed for sins, plural. This is an incredibly profound truth. But perhaps we'd better understand it with just a simple analogy. So think about three people. They're all sick. One has this terrible headache, muscle soreness. It's just tired all the time. The second has a a horrible cough, a sore throat, shortness of breath. 
The third is got congestion, a, a runny nose, and a fever. <coughs> and all three, see that I'm getting sick just thinking about it. And all three of them go to the same doctor. And the diagnosis comes back the same for all three of them. They all have the flu. So obviously, the doctor is going to prescribe the same medicine for all of them, a medicine that fights the flu. Now, the doctor may also give them something for the symptoms, but the chief concern is that their sickness be treated. It's the same with us. We all have the same sickness, sin. We all need the same thing to be made well, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, the sickness of the world. Jesus is the cure for our disease. But it may be true that we're all displaying different symptoms of our sickness, but we all have the same disease. Sin may present itself in in pride in your life and in in homosexuality in my life. I, I may be a liar and you may love money. It may be that you're looking at pornography and, and I'm not trusting God with my future, but at the end of the day, we all have the same sickness. And for any of us to think about our own sins as any less problematic than anybody else's is not only inaccurate, but it could be devastating to your spiritual health. In the same way that if you were to look at your flu symptoms as if they weren't a problem, it could be devastating to your physical health. When John says that Jesus takes away the sin of the world, that's what he's talking about. That sickness that we all have. The sickness of sin. But Hebrews is then going to take that a step further. And it's going to say not only does Jesus treat the sickness but he also deals with the symptoms. He takes the sins in the plural. Jesus treats our sin sickness and our sin symptoms. You see, the sacrifice of Christ changes everything. It deals with our deepest need, providing healing for our deepest sickness. But it also... It also gives relief from the symptoms that we experience in our own lives. Now, now you may be like me. And you may be thinking, I look at my life and I wonder why I'm still wrestling with so many of these sins if they've already been dealt with. Why are they still here if Jesus already dealt with them? Well, in order to think about that, in order to answer that, we're going to have to consider how Jesus deals with our sins in the plural. But before we do that, let's take just a moment and remember what John has told us about God, about Jesus already. He said this, he says, Jesus is God and he's the son of God. He says that he's the sacrifice from God and that he's sacrificed to God. And now 
He's going to tell us that Jesus is anointed by God and that he fills us with God. And that's how he deals with our sins. He fills us with the spirit of God. Do you you see that there in verses 32 and 33? It says this, And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God anointed Jesus. It descended on him and remained. So often in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God coming upon a person for a particular task. And then when that task is done, the Spirit of God goes away. But with Jesus, it remained. And John tells us that that's how he knows that Jesus baptizes with the same Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is upon him, we know that he gives that Spirit to those who are in him. You see, not only does he take away the sin of the world, but to as many as believe on his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, right? He gives us new life. We read that just last week, verses 12 and 13 of this same chapter. He gives us new life in the spirit, And so each day, each day as we live in the spirit provided by Jesus, our sins have just a little less hold on us. Not that we don't sin anymore at all, but that day by day and little by little, we're being made new, we're being given new life, we're being set free from the old sins that used to hold us. That's the testimony of John about Jesus. He is God and he's the son of God. He's the sacrifice from God and he's sacrificed to God. He's anointed by God and he fills us with God. Here's John, this eccentric nobody. And he's telling this group of desperate People who have been looking, who have been longing for someone to come and to save them. He says he's here. He's here. I mean, think about what that means. This changes everything. If Jesus is who John says he is, then everything changes. If John is telling the truth, then everything in the life of those who are listening to him can be changed. And everything in John's life can be changed. And everything in your life can be changed. Think about this. John said that he was lower than the lowest servant. Not worthy to even untie the sandal of Jesus. And certainly, that's true for us as well. We're just as lowly, just as worthless as John. And yet, here's the work of Christ. He makes us his brother and his friend. 
Jesus tells his followers that he no longer calls them servants, but he calls them friends. And even more than calling his followers friends, he says he's not ashamed to call them brothers. If you are in Christ, you have been set free from servitude and are now the friend and the brother of Jesus himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. It takes us from being lower than the lowest slave to being brothers and friends of Christ. But not only does it change our relationship with Jesus, but it alters our standing before God. On our own, we are desperately sick with sin. But Jesus takes our sin away. We are in Christ sinless. The debt of sin has been paid. The Lamb of God has come and He has taken, He's been sacrificed, He's taken the sins of the world. In Jesus, our standing before God is one of righteousness, not sin. The gospel changes everything. We become the brothers, the friends of Jesus. We become sinless before God and we're given the spirit to work in us and to work through us. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't just take your sins away, but it says he baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. He grants you the same spirit that is upon him. Jesus is God and he's the son of God. He's the sacrifice from God and he's sacrificed to God. He's anointed by God and he fills us with God. This Jesus changes everything in our lives, starting with our relationship with God, but it doesn't stop there. Author David Kinnaman puts it this way. He says the gospel changes everything, starting with our hearts and then bursting into our homes and our neighborhoods and our businesses and through the fabric of complicated everyday life. The gospel changes everything. You know, this morning you may have come filled with desperation Like the Jews during those 400 years, maybe you feel like it has been years since you have heard from God. Maybe you would say, I've never heard from God. Maybe you're like John and you think, I've heard from God. I know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but sometimes I just feel worthless. Friend, it's okay. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus changes everything. That's why he came. It's what he still does. He gives us a relationship. He takes away our sin and he fills us with the spirit. When you meet Jesus, everything changes. The question seems to be, do you want to meet him? You know, the Pharisees came that day. They didn't want to meet Jesus. They just wanted their questions answered. Is that you? Or are you more like these disciples of John who heard that Jesus was the Lamb of God and immediately got up and started following him? Let me tell you this. When they did, everything in their lives changed. Let's pray.
Gracious God, we thank you for Jesus, the one who changes everything about our lives. We pray, Lord, that we, that we would meet with you. Lord, that even this day that you would meet with us, change our lives, make us new. We thank you that you are faithful to meet all those who desire to know you. In Christ's name, amen.